0: Welcome back to the program. We have always studied other cultures so that perhaps we could better understand our own. The realm of cultural anthropology has provided us keen insights into our evolutionary nature and why we do the strange things that human beings are known to do. My guest, Wednesday Martin, has used the tools of cultural anthropology to zero in on one very narrow subgroup the tiny percentage of the 1% that reside in and around Park Avenue on the Upper East Side of New York. Her book, The Primates of Park Avenue, has gotten a great deal of attention for both its subject matter, its research, and its authenticity. But there is no question that broadly it accurately reflects a time, a place, and a culture that says something about our collective character in 2015. It is my pleasure to welcome Wednesday Martin here to talk about The Primates of Park Avenue. Wednesday, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Certainly the Upper East Side of New York has long been an enclave of the wealthy, but what you discovered and really that this effort into the cultural anthropology of the area today is really a very different place than the traditional moneyed Park Avenue that uh, we might have known from many years ago. Talk about that first.
1: Well, one of the first differences is that I was studying mothers, and before we might have... Thought of wealthy socialites as you know attractive women um, sort of ornaments uh, decorative um, and you know only pursuing uh, their careers as socialites but the women that I studied uh, are very educated and they put a lot of energy into motherhood following the script of what the sociologist Sharon Hayes calls intensive motherhood where you really are trying to sort of um, work on behalf of your offspring, bettering his or her prospects all the time and bettering the prospects and the social capital of the couple all the time. So that was one of the first differences, you know, that I saw that these, I call them glam Sam's, these glamorous uh, stay at home mothers were very much motherhood and motherhood was one of their careers. They weren't idle or indolent in any way, as I might have expected.
0: The other aspect of it is that while money was no object, they didn't outsource everything. It wasn't like they found different people to take care of their kids, to provide different functions for their kids. They were actively, and as you say, intensely involved.
1: What happened that I saw was that even if a woman had a nanny, for example, and many of these women did have nannies, some of these women... And, and their husbands might have had you know four or five children, as I say in my book, you know three is the new two, just something that people do in the number of having kids, and four is the new three, and five is the new Gulfstream. Stream. You know, children are status objects uh, in in a lot of uh, wealthy contexts, and the upper side is no exception. So, some people have more than one nanny, but that, interestingly, does not free the mother up from her sense of obligation that it is her job uh, to still be involved to supervise the nanny and to be an enhancer of her child's life on every measure and I saw women, as I said, even even when they hired experts, uh, these mothers were very different from our own mothers because they didn't open the door and say to the kids, "Go play in the backyard." They didn't just give the kids Legos and say, "Sit here and play with the Legos." They were the kids' occupational therapists, you know they were the kids' tutors um, they were they were really highly involved in their children's lives in a lot of ways, and we might be tempted to judge them and call them helicopter parents, and that's what happens a lot. But what, what the sociologist Sharon Hayes came up with for us is this idea of intensive motherhood and the suggestion that it's an affliction to the wealthy. And it really is hard um, when you're subjected to this ideology that you're not a good mother if you don't give everything to mothering. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to shake, and it created stress and anxiety for these women I saw.
0: And what kind of stress and anxiety did it create within the relationship between the parents? And what were the expectations of the fathers in these situations, the expectations for the kids?
1: a really really interesting question Jeff because most of the time when we talk about uh what we so dismissively deem helicopter parenting first of all we're not looking at the ideology underneath it and the ideology that fuels helicopter parenting is without question intensive parenting but let's call it intensive motherhood because the place that I studied was very traditionally gender scripted and it was the mothers doing it so it's intensive mothering or intensive motherhood that fuels this this concept of helicopter parenting. So where does it leave the parents? We talk a lot about how helicopter parenting uh, affects children, but I saw that it led to a kind of tense perfectionism among the women, and, you know, anxiety, stress, tense perfectionism doesn't just stay in one person. It affects the whole family system. So what I really saw was that these were women in spite of all their wealth, they were really caught in um, a difficult cultural contradiction. On the one hand, they could submit to intensive motherhood, and you know, not it wasn't enough to just say to your child, do your math homework. You had to go to the math open house at the school to learn how to do the math homework alongside your child so that you could be in a better mind meld her, with her. You know, that's not relaxing for parents or children. So, And if you didn't, you know, if you did that, though, which is what made you a good mother, then you were a helicopter parent. So I really saw these women in ways that surprised me because I thought wealth would just confer benefits. Uh, I saw these women um, facing some conundrums that middle-class parents might not.
0: It also created, all the way through, a really child-centric culture that affected every part of their lives. Talk about that.
1: I talk about how when you study other cultures, sometimes you might see a culture where there's ancestor worship. And what I noted right away was that on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I should say, I'm not putting anybody down for this. You know, as a social researcher, it really wasn't my agenda to judge. I just wanted to figure it out. And one of the things I figured out was that there was what seemed to me like descendant worship rather than ancestor worship, that there was a lot of emphasis Uh, like I said, on advocating for one's children, it is a vocation for these women, and it's not enough to just satirize that or send it up. You really want to try to understand it, because it it has um, some real uh, side effects. And, you know, what happens is, and what you see if you look through the lens of anthropology, is that in a lot of wealthy um, cultures, we've really veered so much from the evolutionary script of childhood. Childhood came about so that children could serve adults and adults could shift uh, the burdens of reproduction and, and child rearing onto others. Now what's happened is we flipped childhood on its head. Um, nowhere, perhaps more so than on the Upper East Side. And parents, particularly mothers, really live in service of their children. And it is not healthy for moms. Or kids, it, it creates an unnecessarily tense, high-stake, and high, highly competitive version of motherhood is what I saw.
0: How much of this can be analogized to the 2015 urban tribalism that, you, that that was written about and used to take place in the suburbs, the, the upper-end suburbs back in the 1950s, the kind of world that Richard Yates wrote about or that Updike wrote about. Now it's been transformed into urban life with lots of money on places like the Upper East Side.
1: Good point. Well, you know, again, as a social researcher, one of the first things I wanted to get at and one of the first facts that... Um, you know, came up in the research was that, yes, there has been this demographic shift and people with more money are now electing and have been for some time to stay in New York rather than go to the suburbs. Um, But it doesn't change the fact that as you observed, there's this almost, um, to me, I always thought of it as a kind of like (laughs) achiever-esque aspect uh, to these relationships and to life for some people um, in, in the world I studied. And, you know, it was traditionally gender scripted at, at a moment in our culture when women are making uh, inroads in, you know, closing the uh, wage gap between men and women and in a world where women are in the workforce um, full, full on. Uh, this culture that I studied was in some ways, as I described it, a, a glittering, moneyed backwater. And in in some instances, many actually, I saw arrangements that appear retrograde when you look at the U.S. more broadly. Mm -hmm. And it was surprising to me. But, you know, further looking into the fact, you, you do see that elite cultures, uh, often tend to be highly stratified and rigidly gender-scripted, and I definitely found that to be the case.
0: And within that context, given that these women are, as you said before, highly educated, many of them had careers or were on a, a strong career track before they got married, how do they square this circle with feminism, which many of them at one time professed?
1: That's another interesting issue The women that I was spending time with were mostly in their mid-30s. And one of the things that I always try to emphasize when I talk about this is that they were at a particular life stage and they were confronting particular social realities. Here's the deal. They were at a life stage when they had young children, um, children who were not old enough to be in school full-time, They were confronting the reality uh, of the social script of intensive motherhood, which really is, it's hard to shake. It's hard to shake ideology, uh, which dictated, you know, you're not a good mother if you don't stay home. And then they were confronting a reality that affects women of every income um, in the U.S. We we have a national child care crisis. People don't like to talk about it, but we have... uh, Pretty much, arguably, abysmal uh, daycare and childcare options in this country. Very few options where there's daycare available at work on site. Uh, very few options where there is a, a healthy um, and uh, you know agreeable uh, caregiver to child ratio and where there's low turnover of caregivers so that kids can really build a relationship with them. And that's childcare in this country is very imperfect. And the anthropologist Sarah Hurdy talks about this a lot in ways that are, um, you know, much more detailed than I can get into. But in it, so these women were actually facing that issue and I thought, well, they could just hire a nanny, but you have to peel that back too, because Um, You know, that's also an imperfect solution. Many times there are, even when there are wonderful nannies, there are vast cultural differences, there might be educational differences, uh, vast ideological differences in how children should be raised so that these wealthy women felt that they should be involved, and really they had no choice to be. So all those factors led to it really being very loaded to say that they chose to stay at home. I don't know that it was a 100% free choice. I don't know that they had great options. And again, how surprising that the very wealthy mothers, um, if they don't have great options, what about the rest of us?
0: Within this tribal culture, and it certainly is very tribal Talk a little bit about the competition between mothers, particularly with respect to the children.
1: Through the lens of anthropology, um, what that's called is intrasexual competition when members of the same sex compete with with other members of their sex, usually for access to a breeding uh, member of the opposite sex. So, for example, what we're used to seeing is male rams battering their heads together, right, to compete for a breeding female and for continued access to her. What I saw on the Upper East Side was really skewed sex ratios, which has been written about, um, that it's been written that uh, women of reproductive age on the Upper East Side outnumber men of reproductive age there two to one. And through the lens of anthropology, one of the first things that you think about that is, well, that is going to change up relationships between men and women in interesting fundamental ways. And it's also going to change up relationships between women. So what you have on the upper east side is you have in some ecological niches uh, where sex ratios are similarly very skewed is men sort of becoming these coy, choosy observers and women uh, competing for the retentions and that's why the Upper East Side is such a body display culture. Um, The, um, you know, the biologist Richard Prom at Yale explained to me that, you know, given sex ratios and Uh, that these women, many of them, were sort of courting and recourting their husbands. And I think that's one of the best ways to understand, you know, why adornment was so extreme, why there was such an extreme uh, preoccupation that women had about their bodies, why they exercised so much. Because of sex ratios, because of ecological circumstances, surprisingly, these very wealthy women were under unique pressures.
0: And what it does is it ups the ante in those pressures. You talked about the pressures before with respect to the kids. When you add on the pressures with the husbands, you really have created a very difficult kind of pressure cooker situation.
1: You have. And let's be clear, I always try to be Jeff, that this is not the same as not being able to put food on the (laughs) table for your children. This This is not the same stress of not being able to afford to take your child to the pediatrician. But what I did see is, you know, what other people have observed, which is that when you control for poverty like that, um, money is not buying these women happiness or a respite from anxiety and stress, and that while wealth can can confer certain advantages, you can fly private, you can afford the best Norland nanny, you can afford the best stroller and the safest car at the same time that it confers undeniable privileges that I would never want to deny, it does come at a price. And the price seems to be anxiety and stress and doing culturally denigrated work and being out of the workforce, so having a power imbalance in your marriage and being the person who has to advocate for the well-being of your child more or less is your job there's more culturally denigrated work plus there's the participation in what i call called mon- mommy which is this endless uh, circuit of volunteerism for often for the child's school to improve the child's prospects now when you put it all together Um, it it is a pressure cooker of sorts. And, you know, as a social researcher, it was not for me to just satirize it or send it up. I really wanted to take it on its own terms and understand what was making these women tense. And it was all those factors.
0: Is there any self-awareness on the part of these women with respect to any or all of the issues that we've been talking about?
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, when I decided to write this book, I obviously very first thing I did was turn to these women and say, listen, I want to write a book about being a mommy on the Upper East Side. I had moved from the West Village. I had found myself, even though I had only moved a few miles, in a very different world uh, that was glamorous and competitive and high stakes. And I turned to these women and I said, I want to write a book about this. Can you help me? Uh, And the ones who wanted to participate uh, did. And you know, they absolutely, of course, these are, these are smart women, um, and they turned a very perceptive and sometimes humorous, always thoughtful, curious eye onto their own world. There were some practices, though, that people were so familiar with that they hadn't noticed, and one of those uh, was sex segregation. And I would say that was the thing that when I pointed it out, Um, there were the most varied responses to among women, with some of them uh, really not having thought about it a lot. But once they started to think about it, they had a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah, absolutely. These were like um, dream informants in a way. You know, smart women with a sense of curiosity and perspective and humor. And they, they told me great stories. And, has, and I did everything I could to protect all of them.
0: <laughs> and has this culture been going on long enough that we can look longitudinally, at least informally at this point, with respect to how these kids are turning out?
1: For that, I would defer to developmental psychologists, probably, and the anthropologists who study childhood um, and motherhood, Sarah Herdy, um being one of them and uh, Meredith Small being another, um, they could give us an even, talk about longitudinal, you know, they they can tell us what, in a broad evolutionary perspective, um, how this fundamental change-up in childhood and motherhood is affecting not just kids and mothers, but our entire species. Um, and as for developmental psychologists, I think they could speak better to this, but here's what I did notice in my you know, personal observations and my personal experience was that where there is intensive motherhood, there is stress on women and children alike, and that it's in everybody's best interest uh, for us to try to get back a little closer to our evolutionary legacy of cooperative breeding in which raising children was a cooperative endeavor. That would take a lot of pressure off um, marriages, uh, mothers, and children, I think.
0: And finally, if you ask these mothers what their desire is for their children, what do they say? What do they say their desires are for their kids?
1: They say exactly what mothers all across the country and fathers across the country say, Jeff, They want their kids to be happy and healthy and hopefully successful. It's just that the definition of success is very different on the Upper East Side among a group of people living in a state of extreme ecological release with all these resources at their fingertips. But underneath it all is a very fundamental fear. I think that all the anxiety that I saw these women experiencing uh, is something so universal the anxiety of not being a good mother and underneath that the anxiety what if i lose my child what if my child dies i think that all the strange seeming behaviors that i saw on the upper east side spring from a universal fear that all parents can relate to
0: wednesday martin her book is primates of park avenue wednesday i thank you so much for spending time with us today
1: Thanks for your very fun and um, thoughtful questions, Jeff. Thank it was you. Nice talking to you.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.